Okay. So I brought my ukulele today because something remarkable happened last night. And, and sometimes you do like a lot of stuff over a period of months or years and nothing seems to come of it. And you continue to do it anyway, just because it's become a habit pattern. And, and so last night I was invited to go to Buena Park, just outside of Anaheim, to a Buddhist center and give a 20-minute talk and play my song, The Five Precepts. And so uh, I had spoken earlier in the day at Leisure World and was a little tired and didn't really want to drive again. But I drove again. And um, so I had my ukulele and I got up on stage and sang the song and then spoke for a few minutes. And then a remarkable thing happened. 25 Sri Lankan children, none of them over the age of 12, lined up on the stage in two rows, all dressed in white, and sang the Five Precepts song. <laughs> and it was just so cute. It just touched me in such a special way that the parents had found my YouTube video on the Five Precepts song and taught their children the song. And they memorized it, and one of the moms said to me, it was really hard to get them to memorize these words. And I said, but wow, what a wonderful gift you've given me tonight. So I thought I'd bring my ukulele and sing the song for you if you haven't heard it or have forgotten what, it's, what it is. And, um, and the YouTube video is still up on YouTube. And I, just, and I, I found it this morning and I said, wow, I, didn't, I forgot I had done it. And that's just what happens to you when you do a lot of stuff. not to take life practice not to take life practice not to take life I will practice every day I will practice not to take stuff practice not to take stuff practice not to take stuff I will practice every day
So you can imagine my surprise and delight to hear 25 children singing that song, and especially when they said, I practice not to get high. <laughs> in, the, in their little squeaky voices, you know. Most of them not knowing what that even meant, you know. Thursday, I went to a symposium held at Cedar sinai Medical Center. And um, it was about better planning, better care, promoting dignity, reducing suffering at end of life. It was all about dying. We had a, a, two panels that were there. We had a panel of physicians, and we had a panel of clergy. And each of them had their own specific way of looking at the challenge of dying, dying well. And most of the major hospitals in the L.A. area were represented. And it was just fascinating to hear their take on it. There's something called advanced care planning. There's a document that we should all fill out, no matter how old or how young we are, uh, because it allows the physicians to know how much they should try to keep us alive. Now, you would think that just staying alive would be an important thing, but sometimes the quality might be more important than the longevity. And, and their job is just to plug us into the wall, you know. We go in there, a terrible car accident, you know, we're unconscious, they start doing all the stuff they do, they plug us into the wall, they come in and see how we're doing, and then we might die. And, and if you haven't thought about dying yet, have you said goodbye to everybody you want to say goodbye to? Have you apologized to everybody you need to apologize to before you die? Have you done the couple things that you really wanted to do before you die? People ask me, what, what would I really like to do before I die? And I said, take a nap. I don't want much. <laughs> and, and, and so it was just fascinating to hear the humanity coming from the physicians on, on their explanation of, you know, in some cases we'd really not, we really feel we shouldn't keep these people alive. But their family and their friends are saying, don't let them die. Don't let them die. So now we had the clergy. And the clergy, we had, we had a Buddhist, we had a Jew, we had a Catholic, we had a black Christian, we had a Muslim, and we had a white Christian. And the reason I make the distinction is the black Christian was a bishop from South Central. So he had a unique way of talking about end of life and dying. And, and what I began to notice was each one of these religions have a very specific way of what you should do in order to die well. So the first question was, it is said you can live well, but is it possible to die well? Is there ever a good death? Now the Buddhist, being, doing what Buddhists do, she reflected and said, well, I don't really like the word good. And then it started. And I thought to myself, wow, what a great way to start this conversation. Because what is good? You know, good is arbitrary, to say the least. It's also by consensus. If enough people think it's good, then it's good. Uh, and, and in having a good death, 
and comparing that to a good life, is there any connection? Does it really matter if you have a good life in order to have a good death? And then I thought to myself, now see, I'm in the audience, I didn't have to, I didn't have to speak today, that day, so I got to listen and eat, which was really nice. And the food was pretty good. So I'm thinking of all the things I would have said. And, and I've been thinking about those for a couple days now because this is like the most important topic we could ever talk about. And rarely are we allowed to discuss it because it's sort of depressing. It means we're all finite. It means we're not going to be here forever. It means we're all going to have to check out. And nobody really wants to tell us how to do that. They only want to tell us how to live and consume and produce, which is fine. I thought to myself last night as I was driving away from the Vesak celebration, the Buddha's birthday celebration in Brena Park, and I'm on Beach Boulevard, and I'm just passing Knott's Berry Farm. And I remember at the celebration, everybody was dressed in white, and there, were, there was Buddhist chanting, and there was a sense of celebration, but it, was, it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't loud. It was, it was a, a thoughtful Celebration, and as I'm driving by Knott's Berry Farm, the roller coasters are going up and down, and people are screaming and yelling. And I'm thinking, what a contrast between these people just a few blocks away who are thinking about life and death and the Buddha's birth, and then these people who are screaming as they have fun. And then I had to get on the freeway and concentrate on that. And so. <laughs> So, so I think in order to have a good death, we, we need to figure out what doesn't die. Okay. And, and if we have something that doesn't die, then that we should really focus on that during our life because that will be important as it migrates to the next life. And you might say, well, the Buddha really never said we had a soul and the Buddha never really said we had a self and the Buddha never said we had this or that. But the Buddha did say the one thing that migrates from lifetime to lifetime is our karma. So the thing that doesn't die is our karma. And that should be the most important thing in our life because it's the only thing that lives after we do. Then we have to figure out what karma is. And karma seems to be everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, which is like a lot of stuff, you know? (laughs) And, and, and why is that important? Well, it seems that there is energy in the world and it can't be destroyed or created. And, and so what we're doing as Buddhists is we're acting as karma transformers. And we take this sort of raw energy that has no value and we think and we speak and we act and we are transforming that energy and giving it an ethical or moral value. So we could say we have skillful speech. If, it's, if, it's, uh, if it doesn't have false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, or idle chatter connected to it. We, we could say our actions can be skillful if we're not killing, stealing, or involving ourselves in sexual misconduct. We could say our thoughts are being skillful if we're not thinking about uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so... Wow, that's like a lot of stuff. How do you keep track of all that? 
And the Buddhist would say, well, perhaps while you're alive, what you need to do is, is take the five precepts, like these little children were reciting last night in this song, that the five precepts allow us to change our speech karma and our action karma. It allows us to change it because it allows us to think about it. So, are we telling lies? Are we killing? Are we taking what is not ours? Are we practicing loving kindness, as what children do? And, and are we getting high? And the problem with getting high, even though it's becoming more and more illegal, which is, which is sort of interesting, it reminds me of Brave New World in 1984 in a way, you know? Like, yeah, let's keep them high and keep them working, you know? And they'll be so tired when they get home, they won't have a time to think about anything else. And then we got a bunch of meditators who said, well, I'm not going to get high, I'm just going to sit here quietly like a frog on a rock and reflect on the meaning of life, which turns out to be math. I don't know if you knew that or not. But I posted that on uh, Facebook today, that a student in a classroom asked her teacher, what is the meaning of life? And he said, math. And then it says, if you take the letters in math and, and see where they, see how many numbers, like A would be 1 and 2 would be B, and da, 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 the word math comes out to 42, <laughs> which of course is the meaning of life in Hitchhiker's Guide to blah, blah, blah. So see, it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> I love this stuff. So, so here we are, and, and now we're Buddhists, and we've decided to take the five precepts because we realize the one thing that we'll live after we die is our karma, and we want to have a good death. Okay, so that gets us started. But then we find out about meditation, and we find out that meditation is designed to literally transform the way you think and experience the world. And if you were at all attached to anything as you're dying, you're going to suffer and it won't be a good death. You have to be really slippery to get out of this life without suffering. Now, Ramdas talked a lot about being in somebody training, that between zero and 30, we're all in somebody training. We're educating ourselves. We're getting career experience. We're finding partners. We're having families. We're going into debt. We're doing all the things we're supposed to do. And then in 30 or 40s, you start to look around and you say, you know, I just don't feel happy all the time. This isn't as satisfying as I thought it was going to be when I started my journey to become somebody because I was told consistently that if I did what I was supposed to do, I would be ultimately happy most of the time. And it turns out I'm not. So maybe being somebody isn't the answer. Maybe being nobody is the answer. So then you go into nobody training and you find places like against the stream and you go there and they say, why are you here? And you say, I want to be nobody. They join us. There's a lot of nobodies here. And, and I thought to myself, you know, it's just ironic that every day somebody dies and nobody dies well. Okay. One, two, three. Done. And so... To be nobody is, is to die well. So how do you get past being attached to all the things you love and like in this life of ours? Well, you meditate. 
And, and, and the first time you meditate, it's, at least for me, speaking personally, it was excruciating. I didn't like it at all. Because I became aware of how unsatisfactory my body was. You know, I had gone to the gym for a number of years. I had worked out. I had overeaten to bulk up, thinking being big was a good thing. Now I'm trying to get small and thinking that's a good thing. Maybe just being is a good thing. And, and my knees hurt and my back hurt, and it was just uncomfortable. And then after a couple years of training the body to sit quietly, then I became aware of my mind, which was really uncomfortable too, because it was, it was super critical about everything I was doing. It would say to me, why are you here? Why are you sitting quietly? There's a lot of stuff you could be doing. You haven't done your laundry in two weeks. Come on. <laughs> and there I would sit, trying to figure out why it was important to do that. But what I was doing in a very real way, for those 5, 10, 15 minutes that I was meditating, it was I was practicing on letting everything go for 15 minutes. All the things I needed to do, all the things I should do, all the people I thought I was or had been, I was able to, in a small, first-step kind of way, let go of that. Let go of everything for 15 minutes. And then eventually you let go of everything for 20 minutes, and then 30 minutes, and then 50 minutes. And now we have a number of people who are on retreat over the weekend who are trying to let go of everything for a weekend, which is really hard to let go of everything for a weekend. So can you imagine how hard it is to let go of everything forever? Almost impossible. And then, if you figure out you can perhaps let go of everything forever, you have a bunch of people left behind who don't want to let go, who don't want you to leave, who really appreciate the fact that you were here in life, in their life. So you can see dying can be a really difficult proposition. Number one, you get the medical profession that doesn't want you to die because they're paid to keep you alive. Number two, friends and family don't want you to die because they like you or love you. And number three, you may not want to die. You may not think it's time. You may think you have a couple more things to do. I thought about that a lot. You know, what do I want to do? And it's not like a bucket list, but it's like, okay, what do I need to do? Well, you know, I got one more book I want to read. And, and why would anybody want to read a book if they're going to die? <laughs> you know? But there's still that one book that I want to read. And, and, and then there's, you know, a couple other things I need to sort of tie up. And, and then it'll be okay. But I don't see that in my near future, getting all the odds and ends and loose ends tied up. So maybe it's not really a good time to die now. And then I go on the 405. What am I thinking? <laughs> if I wanted to stay alive, I shouldn't be on the 405. So... So you can see we're, we're faced with this dilemma. And, and so to have a good death, first of all, we need to understand that there is no good death, that the word good doesn't work for a Buddhist. Because if you take one of the O's out of good, you have God. And what does that leave you as a Buddhist? Nothing. And you might say, but the definition of God is everything. And then you might say, well, the definition of nothing is everything. And you can define fullness and emptiness with the same definition, which just trips me out. But I don't see the next life as being 
you know, uh, hills covered with wavy grass and harp playing and clouds in the sky. Because I don't know anybody who's alive who would want to go there right now. <laughs> it would be pretty boring. <laughs> so why would you want to go there after you die? You know, so, so we have to say, okay, well, if we, if we can't use the word good, we can use the word skillful. I want to have a skillful death, and in order to have a skillful death, I need to have a skillful life. And some of the skills I'm learning through Buddhism is that in order to live in harmony with others, I need to practice the five precepts. It's about living together. Now, I was talking to Holly earlier, and she said, you know, I don't like to put the chairs too close together in this room. Because there's something about Buddhists sitting really close together that just creeps me out. That we're sort of like a bunch of cats. We sit alone together. We all have our own specific, unique practice, and yet we come to share with others what our practice is, knowing they'll never do our practice because they're doing their practice. But it's our community, and we don't have to be shoulder to shoulder to realize we're all interconnected and interdependent on each other all the time anyway. I just wanted to say that. So... So here we are, and now we've taken the five precepts, and now we're starting to meditate, and now we start to see, okay, I need to practice letting go of stuff. And, and, and what, when I say letting go, it's practice of not being attached to the stuff that's in my life. It's not that you don't have stuff, and it's not that you don't use stuff, but you never own stuff. When, last time I went to get cat food at Food for Less, they say, how many cats do you own? I said, I don't own even one cat. Well, why are you buying cat food? I said, well, I care for eight cats. But you never own a cat. <laughs> and then she looked at me, and then I stopped talking because she knew I was crazy, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not like we don't have stuff, and it's not like we don't use stuff. It's like we don't own stuff. So now I'm going to practice not using my stuff for 15 minutes. Okay. In samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, there is a way to get to a place where you don't have past and future. So we can practice letting go of past and future, which is really cool because that's the one thing we don't want to let go of when we die. We have all those memories we sort of like to think about. We have all that future ahead of us that we like to think about as well. But neither of those things exist in any real way. It's just mind thinking. So if you have samatha meditation and have an object of meditation, for instance, your breath going out and in, and you focus and concentrate long enough and come to a single-pointed state of mind on the sensation of breath, what will happen is you'll start to come in to the present moment experience of your life. In order to be in the present moment experience of your life, you have to let go of past and future. It literally does fall away. And all you have now is a sensation of breath. Sensation of breath, which is always happening right now because every sensation we're aware of is always happening right now. So we have no past and future. And it's really pleasant. If you're having a bad day or are fearful about an event that's coming up in the future, to get into that little present moment space 
of your life is like a little refuge. You can just take a big breath and you don't have any past or future and you don't have fear and anxiety or regret. And it's just really nice. The problem is we can't stay there very long because we have things to do and places to go, which requires us to have a past and a future. But while we're there, it's so peaceful. Now, the next thing that can happen if you keep concentrating and really working hard on your object of meditation is that you can let go of your body. Now, you really don't ever let go of your body. It's, it's our vehicle. We can't just say, I'm not going to use it anymore. But what we can get rid of is our body image map, which is in our mind, which was placed there long, long ago when we kept running into walls. So we were little guys and gals, and we would just start running and run into a wall and fall backwards. And our parents would say, no, 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 you can't run into a wall. And then we started to realize there was a place that ended my body and a place that began the world. And those two things could never come together again. We were now separate from the world we needed to be because we kept running into walls. It gives you a sense of dis-ease to be separate from the world. But we need that because the world is such a complicated place. We need to be able to be separate from it so we can use the world to our advantage. We need to be able to use the door to exit and enter. If we are one with the door, we never leave. Okay. Then our parents decided it would be good for us to talk. And I don't know why they would ever think that. But they started giving us words and pointing at different objects in the house. And finally we figured out if we said this sound, chair, and pointed at the object that had, didn't look like a chair, because the chair is just a sound and, a, and the form is just a form, and yet we put those two things together and our parents were so happy they were just amazed that we could look at something and call it something as if we understood. And they kept giving us more words and more things, and pretty soon we were separate in even more ways from the world around us because of our vocabulary. And if we have 50, 60,000 words, we're separate in 50, 60,000 different ways. You don't think that's going to trip you out once in a while? To be so separate from everything? Because you have to be able to use those things. And in order to use them, you have to be separate. And then they taught us math. And math allowed us to be separate in a really cool way. Because it was abstract. You could have two oranges and two apples and still have four. Whoa! Isn't that neat? So we, were, we kept getting more and more separate and more and more separate. And now we decided we want to go into nobody training. And we started meditating, and we sat down, and we lost our past and future one time. You go, whoa, cool, oh, yeah. And then one time you sat down, and you lost your body image, that you no longer were separate from the world around you. And it was like the cosmos embraced you. Welcome home, son or daughter. Good to see you again. And in that moment of not having a body, being connected to the cosmos, the world around us, there was a sense of joy and happiness and peace that came from deep within, that we had come home, really come home. And then the gong rang, 
and everything became separate again. We had to use the door to leave and go back, and we had past and future, and all the stuff just sort of happened like it always happens, and we got back into our habit patterns. But then the next Wednesday or Tuesday, we went back to the meditation center, and we, we started to meditate, and we lost past and future again, and we lost the idea of body again. And so as we got deeper and deeper into our meditation practice, now we get to a place where, we, where we're not even aware of the sensation of breath, but we're aware of the representation of the sensation of breath, which is in our consciousness. And in some of the ancient Buddhist texts, it has been described as cotton or lava or flowing water, more of a symbolism, if you will, of what that breath is, that fixed identifiable breath. We have now come to the internal reality that has always been there. Always been there. We've never been without it, but we've been so used to looking outside and naming everything and using everything that we forgot that existed. And back in the 60s, some of you probably remember, there was a whole bunch of pioneers using LSD. You know? And they would just like jettison themselves off into this subconscious reality. And some would like really freak out. Some would really enjoy it. Some could hardly wait to get back there. But they were just doing, they were just going to a place that was always there and always available to us. And finally, through meditation practice, we realized we didn't have to use a chemical platform to get there. That simply watching your breath could take you right there. And you could see the archetypes of your own consciousness, as Carl Jung might say. You could find your archetypes. Wow, cool. Now, do you think that might have something to do with the way you die? That in practicing meditation and going into these deep states of concentration and going into these deep levels of consciousness and subconsciousness, we're becoming familiar with the death process. So we don't have to freak out when all of a sudden lights appear. And we don't have to freak out if there's no tunnel and people waving at us. <laughs> you know, it's just like we're now going to go into our meditation. And off we go. Does our consciousness die ever, really? Well, in some forms of Buddhism, you'd have to say it might migrate as well. But do we, as individuals, looking the way we do, do we migrate? And I would have to say, absolutely not. If you're planning on meeting your relatives and friends, friends someplace, and you're a Buddhist, you're not going to recognize them. But it's okay. Maybe we don't need to. Maybe being with them 50 years is enough. <laughs> So why would I say that? Well, look at yourself when you were 5, and look at yourself when you were 10, and look at yourself when you were 15 or 20, and look at yourself today, and there might be some resemblance, but it would be hard to pick yourself out of a crowd if somehow the 5-year-old person you used to be ended up in a crowd. So what would give us the idea that we could identify ourselves 100 years, 1,000 years in the future? We're always changing, physically and mentally, and the person that walked through that door today is not going to be the person who leaves. That person died when they came in. And somebody else was reborn because of a variety of experiences that happened in the present moment. 
so you know more or less than you did when you came in, you can't possibly be the same person. You know? And if you get to be my age, you might notice a new wrinkle just surfaces in an hour. And you go, whoa, look at that. What happened to the old guy who didn't have any wrinkles? Now it's just the old guy that has them. So you just look at yourself and you go, yeah, I am constantly in a process of changing. And never for the good. My own way of looking at it. And pretty soon I'll be at a place where it's hard to see, hard to hear, and hard to talk. And I may not have much to say. And you go, whoa, okay. But how about the the guy that's on YouTube? Where did he go? Well, he died. He's always dying. Though all those people you used to be, they're all dead. You need to have a memorial service for them once in a while. Honor their being there, happy they showed up, sad that they went. But now somebody else has taken their place, and somebody else will take their place. It's just a giant relay race. And we have all have our own legs to run. And then we hand off the baton to the next person and hope they do just as well as we do. And in most cases, they do better because they've had more experience and they have a deeper understanding about what needs to be done. So we shouldn't be sad that we can't make the whole journey. We just have to focus on our leg of the run and hand off that baton and not be attached. Not be attached to how it used to be or how it should be or how it could be, but just to simply be aware of how it is. And it takes a lot of practice sitting on the cushion to understand the complex change and flux that occurs in every moment of our life. And as soon as we close our hand and say, I don't want to change anymore because I really like the person I am right now, we suffer. We try to make it rigid. We try to make it unchanging. But if we can open our hand again and say, yeah, I like this person, I like this person, I like this person, because they're always new. Cool. Less suffering, ultimately no suffering. So perhaps for Buddhists to have a good death, we have no suffering. Palliative care is designed to get rid of the pain. Buddhism is designed to get rid of the suffering. Both those two working together would allow us to transition into our next lifetime. So when a Buddhist says, I'm going to die, it's not like you're not going to exist anymore. You're just going to exist in a different way, the same way you've existed differently during your whole life. You've never been the same person very long, even though we have the illusion we have been or are. So now I have to die so I can live again. And rather than have it, wow, what's going to happen? Now you've taken the precepts, you've been practicing meditation, you've been practicing on having a skillful life, you have been building your merit account. Merit is a good thing. I know it sounds like a businessman's kind of Buddhism. (laughs) But every time you do something really good, you get merit. And every time you're a jerk, you get demerit. And so how is your account doing today? More, less. Then 
The Buddhist secret into really having a supersized karma account is to give away all your good merit to people that need it. And in doing that, you get twice as much in return. How cool is that? The simple practice of generosity allows you to have twofold in return. And it's true. And you can test it out. Just start giving stuff away. Not the really important stuff. I'm talking about quarters or dollars. Just start small. You know, Leave change behind in a vending machine. It will change the world. Have you ever found a quarter in the coin slot of a vending machine and thought today is your day? I can't imagine spending a quarter in any better way. And then you'll find out somebody gives you 50 cents for no apparent reason. You go, wow, I give a quarter, I get 50 cents back. Cool. And that's how it starts. And then your practice of giving starts to multiply. And I started with the cats. That was my real practice of giving. About 150 bucks a month to feed cats that I don't own. And they all show up, and, 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 they, and, they, and, they, and they have the little cultural get-together before the meal, and they all see each other, sometimes for the first time that day, and then I feed them, and then they go to each other's plate to see who got the best, you know, <laughs> just the way it sort of works. And then there's always some left over, but there's always one or two cats that didn't have enough, and they go back and finish it off. And so I just started doing that, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm thinking 150 bucks a month, well, that's a lot of money to spend on cats. I mean, I could get a new computer. I could have a, you know, a lot of stuff for 150 bucks a month, but I kept buying cat food. And then other people started to give me cat food. They say, here, here, let me help you. Here's a bag of cat food. Here are a couple cans of cat food. Let me help you. And, and without even asking for the help, they found that the generosity they were extending to a bunch of cats they didn't own and didn't even know allowed them to get rid of a little bit of their greed. See, the deal in Buddhism is we're not giving stuff to make other people's lives better. We're giving stuff to make our life better. Because the Buddha warned us we all have too much greed. And the best way to get rid of greed is to practice generosity. If you give enough away, you'll have no greed left at all. Cool. So the practice begins, and the merit starts to accumulate. And all those cats, the object of your generosity, also turn out to be the best way to accumulate merit. And then every once in a while, you do it with a human being. But you know, human beings are really tricky, because sometimes you want to give to them But there seems to be agendas everywhere in giving to human beings. And that's just because it's more complicated. Cats are pretty simple, you know. And so as I give to human beings, I really have to be careful not to get attached to the giving and expect it to be spent or used in a certain way. Because human beings will always disappoint you. Cats, they'll just eat. So it's an advanced form of generosity when you start practicing it with humans. And, and I'm easing into that slowly. But I don't have a lot of stuff, so sometimes I'll just give away incense. And they go, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. 
And you're welcome. I buy it on Amazon. It's much cheaper. And, and you just start giving this stuff away. And then once in a while, you might give away food to humans because humans like to eat, but then they get picky. I don't want that. You know? So it's, it's just... But all the while, you're using this to build your karma account, and then when you take that last breath, you can think about all the things you did that created generosity and kindness and insight in the world. And your mind state will be in the perfect place to be reborn in a better life. The Buddhists say the last thought you have in this lifetime is the first thought you have in the next lifetime. And uh, I was just reading about Tupac Shapur. Well, I think that's his name. You know who I'm talking about. And, and the police officer just came out with his last words. And I'm thinking, well, this would be really cool. What are his last words? Were they profound, insightful? No, it was pretty much screw you, his last words. As the police officer was asking who shot him. And he looked up and said, he didn't use the word screw, but I was cleaning it up a little bit. And, and, and then he started to gurgle, and then he died. So, but his lifestyle sort of led him in that direction, to have that last thought, to have those last words. But our lifestyle, if we start working on it right now, can lead us to have a different thought and different last words. You know? And I'm fond of saying our abbess, when she died a couple months ago, her last words were, that's it. Now, myself, thinking about that, knowing her, I doubt if she said it that way. I think she probably said, that's it. One more thing to figure out, and she figured it out. And then, bang. So maybe we'll be so lucky to have that one more thing and finish it at the end. So having a good life could and very well may determine having a good death. But as a Buddhist, we would say having a skillful life oftentimes brings on a skillful death. And rather than being somebody who dies... Perhaps it's better to be nobody who dies. I think I'm going to stop there and ask if anybody has any comments or questions on what I've said today. You're all sitting there in a state of shock. That's good. Because this is really a difficult subject to talk about. We love to talk about birth and the beginning of stuff. But the end of stuff, not so much. Hideki. Couldn't help thinking about, about that guy. oh, the guy up in Santa Barbara? Okay. Yeah. Didn't have a good death, did he? Took a lot of people out with him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, at some point, I suppose, if we, if we have the mental capabilities of doing it, and he seemed, there seemed to be an issue with his mental capabilities, that we are responsible and we are accountable for what we do. And even if we, have, if, even if we think we have a good reason and are doing the right thing, it could end up we did the wrong thing. And even with the best intentions, we can mess up. So it's, it takes great courage to live 
in an authentic way because you're making decisions. You're making decisions every day and every moment, never knowing if they're ultimately good or bad. But we do have a guide. We do have a reference point, and that would be the Dharma. And more importantly, that would be the five precepts. So if they seem to line up and parallel with the five precepts, chances are pretty good. Chances are pretty good that, that we're being skillful in what we think, say, and do. So if you apply the five precepts to the guy in Santa Barbara, uh, he broke most of them. You know? and, and I have to think, coming from a movie family, that maybe he looked at himself as being an actor in a film. Because when he's sitting in his car giving his last... I mean, he had the light, he had the background with the trees, you know. I mean, it was a, it was a good shot. And I don't know if he set it up or just got lucky. But it sounded like a movie script to me. And he was reciting, you know, something. And then, and then his reality, you know, just turned into that. And sometimes when I'm on the freeway seeing people drive... It's like they're playing a game, you know? And they're just like weaving in and out and they got the whole deal. I'm thinking, wow, how can people do that? But sometimes that disconnect occurs in our life. And that's what's sort of nice about meditation. If you do it on a daily basis, you, you get to reconnect with yourself every day and check in and see how you're doing and seeing how the precepts are working for you. And sometimes we need to take that time out just to, just to see how things are going. Because we can get so involved in going here and doing this and doing that and looking forward to this that we forget there's more to life than news, weather, and sports. You know? Yeah. Thanks, Sadeki. Yeah, Phil. Uh-huh. During meditation, and I was wondering if that's related to samatha meditation, and if you could just uh, give us a quick review of the counting. It was from one to ten, and ten bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's the. It seems to be. Um, we need to have a tether because our our breath can become very subtle, and we lose track of it. So the tether or the rope that we would tie to the sensation of breath would be counting. Would be a concept. So that concept allows us to stay connected to the sensation of breath. Now, as you continue to practice counting, and I breath counted for two years before I gave that up, um, it, the breath becomes more and more obvious to you, and ultimately you don't have to use the numbers anymore to keep track of the breath. That your, your consciousness just simply rests on the sensation of breath. When you get rid of the concept of numbers, you even go deeper into your meditation. Because when you're thinking about the number, you're going to be staying at a sort of a relative intellectual level. And when you are able to get rid of the counting, you can go back, you can go into an intuitive knowing level, deep inside. But counting was very useful for me in the beginning because if I was counting my breath, I was meditating. And people would tell me what meditation is, but it'd be, it was very abstract and otherworldly. So I could never figure out if I was meditating or just sitting quietly or just sitting and thinking. 
But when I was counting my breath, that gave me a definite way to measure meditation. Yeah. It's actually both. You can, you can do insight meditation and summata meditation or tranquility with counting the breath. With counting the breath? It works in both cases. So it's, it's the best, I think. Okay. Arna. Yeah. Yeah. Parents, close friends, you know. Yeah. No, it <clears throat> this is really good intellectually and makes perfect sense. And then your mother dies. And you cry for 3 days. And you go, "You know, I've been meditating, I've been counting my breath, I've been taking the five precepts. I don't want to let her go." I'm sad when when she left. It's true. It's true. Um, The the rabbi at the uh, symposium at Cedar sinai said, uh, around the deathbed, you don't want someone who's afraid of death. I thought that was just so profound. So if you're at all afraid of death, you don't need to be at the deathbed. Because it might interfere with the person who's dying. So, I have found with the death of parents that they never really leave you because their voices are always in your head, generally telling you what not to do. (laughs) So that doesn't go away. Uh, I also see that at a certain point in the process of life, there's no payoff anymore, that that there's, there's more suffering and pain than joy and happiness and pleasure. And, and at some point, it's better for them to die. In the grieving process, it allows us to naturally let go of them. So we have a built-in, we have a built-in safety measure that allows us not to go insane. And it's called grief. And we shouldn't be afraid to express our grief. We should embrace our grief and, and understand that, that every human who has ever lived, generally speaking, has felt this emotion because they've lost something or someone. And if you have pets, you know, man, that just happens your whole life then because they don't live very long. It, it allows you the next time to be a little more skillful and the next time to be a little more skillful as well with the grieving process and the letting go. But the grieving allows us to let go in a natural way. Meditation allows us to let go in a quicker way. If we, if we connect our meditation and our grieving together, it accelerates the process of letting go. And resolving the loss and coming to a new place in the relationship. Because the relationship never ends, it simply changes because you still remember. So when I think back to all the pets I've lost, I'll use them as an example, I can see them and picture them and I can smell them and I can feel their fur and, and I'm going, I'm so lucky they were in my life and I'm so sad that they're gone and that's just life. And people that really love life miss something. And people that really hate life miss suffering. 
something. It's, there's a balance in there between the gain and the loss. You know? and, and when you find that place of balance, it brings you to a state of equanimity. Not indifference, but equanimity. Uh, a, a state of clarity, but also tempered with kindness. And so it's, it's, in one way it's a gift, but it's a difficult gift to accept. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Um, back to the breathing. Breathing. If you don't, if you don't mind. Um, so on a daily basis, off the, off the mat, do you, or does one, should one practice breathing all the time? I can, I can come back to it if I'm in a stressful situation. You know, if something's happening, I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, getting het up. And then I'm like, okay, breathe. And I'm like, you know, I can bring myself back. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. walking down the street, going to the market, are you breathing? Are you concentrating on that all the time? Are you in that mindful moment? No. My, speaking personally, no, I am not. Uh, I, I become aware of my breath at certain times during the day. Uh, but generally speaking, I've got other stuff to do. And... <laughs> And so it might interfere. It might interfere with what I need to do. So, uh, but, but, but let me give you an example of, of where it would be really useful. And, I, and I, this is becoming so apparent to me. I, I have a prepaid dumb phone that I only use when I travel. And I only turn it on when I need to talk to somebody. Okay? And yet I see a lot of people in the world today who find themselves with nothing to do. And the first thing they pull out is their phone. And they start just staring at the screen. And wouldn't it be cool when you find yourselves in those situations to come to your breath and leave your phone in your pocket? It would, it would satisfy the same need to do something, but it would keep you in the present moment rather than taking you out into la-la land. I had my car worked on um, a couple weeks ago, and they said it was going to take a couple hours, and it took uh, five hours which is really a long time to wait. And so I, I thought to myself, well, I'll just wait. You want to go someplace? No, I'll just wait. So they had a little table outside with a little chair, and I sat at the, in the chair at the table for five hours. Yeah, and this one guy comes up and says, you've been here a really long time. Why? I said, I'm practicing. And he thought I was nuts, and he left. <laughs> but... During those five hours, I had a chance to think about a lot of stuff I had put off. Now, it might sound funny, but Bob Dylan said something similar to that. He was sitting at a table all alone, and somebody came up and said, Do you mind if I talk to you? And he said, No, I'm busy. And the fellow said, What are you busy doing? He says, I'm busy thinking. And, and so I had five hours to think, uninterrupted, besides a few fellows wondering why I was still there. You know, and I thought to myself, well, this is really a wonderful opportunity. I'm not going to call anybody. I thought about going to a movie, but there weren't any good movies I wanted to see. So I just sat. So we can use the counting of breath to occupy time in a very special way, to bring ourselves to the present moment experience of our life, to bring ourselves to our critical thinking that never stops. Well, what am I thinking about now? How do I feel now? Am I angry because it's taking so long? Am I grateful because I have so much time with nothing to do? That kind of stuff. So I don't watch my breath all the time. But I use it, hopefully, in a skillful way. Thank you.
Hi, sir. Hello. Really very inspiring, wonderful talk today. Thank you. Thank you. I found myself thinking about, uh, as you say, the contrast, which is birth, and I think about how much thought and preparation and uh, consideration and meditation I put on, on the two children that I gave birth to and how I wanted it to be and, and, and who I wanted with me and all of these things. Um, and it was very, very lovely. I mean, you make all these preparations and you let it go and let whatever happens happen. But wouldn't it be so nice, I think, for myself <coughs> to put that same consideration and preparation just, you know, mentally, emotionally into my own death? I mm -hmm. think that would be a really very, not only good for me, but good for the people around me. Absolutely. Right, who are going to have a hard time letting go. Um, and, uh, and I also am realizing, too, at this point in my life, my parents are kind of the end of their life phase. Uh, and I find myself wanting to move and live closer to them so that I can observe and learn from them as they go through their end of life phase and just go through it with them. Yes. See what I can experience from their death. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it doesn't have to be, and and they can be our best teachers. Yes, we we have a lot to learn because it's kept secret from us. We we're not allowed to go see dead bodies in coroner's office. We're not allowed to be around people who are dying. Generally speaking, unless we know them or have a relationship with them. So yeah, no, it's it's a big secret. It's the last great secret. Let me tell you about a book. The, at this conference, at the symposium, a woman. Uh, the keynote speaker, her name is Katy Butler, K-A-T-Y-B-U-T-L-E-R. Um, she wrote a book, and it was called, and the book is called Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. And she talked about her parents dying. And one died really well, and one died not so well. And she talked about the differences and why. Yeah. And she does it in a very <clears throat> skillful heartfelt way. Excellent speaker. I bought the book. I found a Kindle version, Amazon.com, $2.99. I'm always in for a bargain, you know. And it's, it is really written well. So, so it's rare to find somebody who writes that can speak too. And she, she does both well. So, yeah. So, Caddy Butler, I can recommend that. that. That might help you with your parents and then help you with yourself as well. Yeah. I'm reading it too. Thank you. So our time has come to an end. It, it went by fast for me. Hopefully it went by fast for you. Uh, a quick loving-kindness meditation, and uh, enjoy your weekend. I, I don't know if barbecue is in your future, but uh, I might be going vegan. Okay, here we go. <laughs> May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief. <laughs>